This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Just a moment for folks that are joining us here. Welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club. We gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, and cover different topics around decentralized research based on your feedback. And so if you have a topic that you'd love to see us cover in the coming weeks, drop us a line. There is a form at DTRA's website for our members, but you can always reach out to myself, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali. Drop us a line and let us know what topics are important or interesting to you. And we'll be sure to cover them in the upcoming weeks ahead. In the meantime, give a click around to the folks that are here in the room with you. Um, not just the folks that may be speaking today, but that are joining you here. They share your interest in today's topic. They could be great connections for you. Check out their profiles. Maybe give them a follow on LinkedIn or Twitter. They could become your new best friends. We'll get things started here in just a moment. All right. I think this is as good a time as any to get started. Hello and welcome. For those of you who are new, you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. You can give a follow to the club in the upper left corner of your screen. Give a follow there and you'll be able to be notified about upcoming gatherings we're having. But also from that club page, you'll find the replays of all of our content dating back to over a year. So these are gatherings around all sorts of different topics related to decentralized research. Sometimes we're gathering around a particular therapeutic area, a certain patient population. Sometimes we're gathering to talk about data and interoperability, regulation and privacy. Sometimes we're talking about uh, patient factors such as access, experience, diversity and representation. Um, those topics come from you the folks in this community. And so be sure to let us know about the topics that are of interest and importance to you, and we'll keep them coming here each week on TGIFDCT. Also, a quick program note. Some of you may be listening to this through uh, your favorite podcast platform, and that's new for us in 2023, where the content here will not only be available as a replay on Clubhouse, but will also be repackaged each week and made available to you through uh, your favorite podcast outlet. So be sure to give a follow there if that's your preference. And we'll keep this content coming out and over into your favorite listening pathway. Jane Miles, hello. How are you today? Good morning. I am, I am recovering and it's 
it's unseasonably cold here in Northern California, AKA snow. AKA snow. That's crazy. You know, here in the Northeast, it's been surprisingly a lack of snow, but I am seeing some friends in the room in the Boston area, and I know they just got a little bit of snow this week as well. So I guess it's a wonky weather week. And along the lines of recovering, if you hear coughing and sniffling on this call, well, fortunately, you're safe uh, from transmission. But I think these are all still the long consequences from the Scope Summit last week, which was, uh, I guess, a week and a half ago now. Uh, you know, some of your co-hosts here are some of the COVID follow-ons from uh, the Scope Summit down in Florida. A great gathering great connections, great sharing. Unfortunately, it uh, turned out to be a good opportunity for sharing some other things, right, Jane? Yep, but I gotta say, all things considered, my my recovery is gonna be fine. I'm just impatient, so here's to getting through it. Same, same. I think you're, I feel like, I feel like you're lingering longer than I am, but I think we'll all get through it, and thank you to vaccine and Paxlovid trial participants out there. Well, um, Jane, we've got a good topic today. Um, this topic came the way some of my favorite topics come for us on, uh, on TGIF DCT. And it's when people in the community are writing interesting pieces on provocative topics. And the one that stood out to me this week was something that Karen, from IQVIA had written up about navigating GDPR guidelines in decentralized trials. I love when there are folks in the community that are writing provocative pieces and we can bring them on to the show here to talk further about why they covered this particular topic. We can go deeper and we can go deeper live with this audience and give everyone here an opportunity to bring their questions and ideas and experiences forward. So. With that, it is my great pleasure to welcome Karen, uh, co-author of that particular piece. Karen, um, introduce yourself for folks in this crowd who have not yet had the pleasure. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Jane. I really appreciate being invited on today. This is a, a great pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with everyone today and, and hearing other people's thoughts and experiences as well. So uh, just a brief background. Um, so I lead the electronic informed consent business at IQVIA. I was part of the initial team that developed this technology back in 2003 um, based off of a grant that was brought to us uh, in order to try to make patient consent more um, patient-centric, more patient-friendly, and in particularly, interestingly enough, um, especially for the elderly population. And my background that brought me um, to this all together is that um, my background is actually in physician-patient communication. That's what I did my master's thesis in, and some PhD work was around intercultural and health communication, wanting to make sure that patients really understood what was being asked of them, um, not necessarily at the time in clinical trials, but in general in terms of taking care of their health. And they could do this in situations especially where perhaps the patient and the doctor came from different cultural and language backgrounds. So I'd spent a lot of time in the early days uh, working in hospitals and following and recording physician-patient conversations and helping to develop one of the first um, 
communication uh, rotations for physicians in, uh, in uh, their studies. And then eventually, having also been about the closest you get to being a digital native when you're in your mid-50s, um, I started with computers back in the early 1980s, so I was always really interested in digital and that aspect. And those two things, fortunately, uh, intersected for me in the early 2000s when I was working for a software development company in the healthcare field. And we had this opportunity to develop a patient-centric uh, means for informed consent in clinical trials. And so most of you will recognize that that was pre-iPhone and, and iPad. Uh, we were actually developing a product that was launched on physicians' computers and kiosks and hospitals. And it struggled for years and years and years. It was sort of this experimental nice to have that a few people and nonprofits were behind, but it didn't you know, really take off for a lot of years. So fast forward literally a lot of years, 20 years later, uh, we all have seen the explosion of electronic informed consent and other patient-centric, decentralized technologies in the clinical trial space. And along with the explosion of the need for that, of course, the oversight, uh, the regulations, sometimes the lack of regulations, and a tremendous amount of confusion now about you know, how do we navigate? What's permissible? How do we engage the patient and protect the patient and protect their privacy? Uh, and enter a number of years ago, GDPR, the uh, Global Data Protection Regulation in Europe, which caused lots of consternation throughout the, the technology industry, um, far greater than just healthcare, but specifically in healthcare where we're dealing with such sensitive information. So, um, as you've alluded to, Craig, and I know you've, uh, you've put in the link, uh, my colleague Jill Baring and I uh, co-authored an article and have done a number of webinars and presentations around navigating GDPR and other um, regulatory guidelines in decentralized clinical trials. And I, I want to put out the caveat that Jill, as lead author on that paper, is really the data privacy expert, um, also based here in Germany where I live. Um, she's got a legal background and a, um, a, uh, a, a DPO history, so she's the first expert. She would have loved to have been here, but she couldn't be here on a Friday night this week. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do my best to stand in and answer questions for you all. So uh, that's my very long introduction. I'll, I'll pause now and, and see where you'd like me to take this next. Thanks so much, Karen. That's a great background for today's conversation. I'd love to get a, just a maybe a start with a pulse check. Where do you feel we are on the e-consent, either adoption curve or hype cycle? Um, are we still ascending? Are folks still experimenting? Do you feel like this is starting to stabilize, at least in some organizations in some countries? Does it still feel very project specific one by one How, what's what's your sense in terms of where we are right now uh, great question absolutely still at the foot of the hill um, there's a, a tremendous potential opportunity still it is still very much um, in the early adoption stages. It's been dragging its feet through those early adoption stages for a very long time. Um, but, uh, you know, if people think back to ECOA and EPRO and even EDC, you know, it's a 10-year pickup curve easily. And adoption is coming along uh, very, you know, slowly but steadily. But we have a long ways to go. Tremendous growth opportunity. 
I have a a double click. Oh, go ahead, Jane. No, no. um, I want to go backwards. So you take the lead, and then I'm going to take Karen a little bit backwards in time. (sighs) Well, I was just going to build on that with just a quick follow-on, and then I'll let you go back, which is um, a little bit on the forward side. You know, Karen, there was a, a campaign we did with friends maybe a year and a half, two years ago of no going back. And we've been talking with friends lately of, you know, is there more of a question mark than an exclamation point on that statement nowadays? Is there <laughs> is there concern that if you were maybe reaching the peak of your change curve in your organization, you're pretty hopefully in a good place to keep pushing forward. If you're still, as an organization, still working to climb that change curve, do we fear or risk that some organizations are going to slide back right now? There's so many factors conspiring to make drug development particularly difficult right now, whether some of the consequences in the U.S. around reimbursement from the Inflation Reduction Act, the consequences of the economic climate, the consequences around pipeline issues. Um, do you fear at all that, you know, for some organizations, the progress may actually stall? Well, that's interesting. So you've really defined the denominator there in the ratio equation of adoption, and that is by focusing in on organizations. And I'm going to presume for a moment that you're talking about like sponsor organizations and, and maybe site networks to some extent. When we talk about adoption and growth in the future, we still have a long ways to go. Um, I'd say first and foremost on the regulatory front, and then secondly on the site adoption and the cultural site adoption question. I'd say that most organizations from a sponsor perspective, you're right, you've said you know they've kind of hit this maximum change, they've engaged, they've adopted, um, embraced it. I mean, I'm working right now with more than 70 different pharmaceutical companies that are deploying electronic informed consent. And I'll tell you, the sponsors are on board. Uh, they get uh, the value of this and that this is where we need to go and, and, and why we need to go there. Um, but what we're still fighting against isn't those organizations where we're still needing to, and it's not a fight really, it's about education, where we still need to educate and assure and and make others in this process, other stakeholders comfortable is around things like we are protecting your data and we have backup plans and we understand the enormous burden on sites and the stress that you're under and how fitting in a new technology needs to fit your workflows and, and, and ease them and not create new burdens. So I think that's why it's so complex and why the future still has so much growth opportunities. We've kind of you know, conquered the first little hill, if you will, in terms of sponsor adoption, but we're a long ways off on site and cultural country regulatory adoption. Oh, those are that's a great setup. Jane, you had a, uh, a follow-on question as well, and then I'd love to double-click on some of the uh, country concerns uh, around privacy, culture, legal, and, and definitely get into some of the strategies that maybe we can make this easier for sites. Jane, what's on your mind on this topic? Oh, I want to go to the country level too, and uh, frankly, the site level. But before we go there, since your background was specifically in communications and what I'll say experience, like how to help people with a better experience, 
how are we doing on implementing e-consent to make that experience better? And I'm going to be honest and say I'm disappointed that e-consent sometimes is a PDF document. But what was your vision and how are we doing on that? Oh, that's really a great, great point, Jane. Thank you. Um, so uh, you're right. Frequently, um, consent is presented and, and called e-consents in a format that is essentially a PDF. Uh, that is absolutely not where I entered the space, nor what we do. And in fact, to this day, 20 years later, I've yet to actually put a simple PDF product on the market, although I confess I will be doing so under huge market duress um, later this year. Um, we that that's not what e-consent is about. And if you go back to what Transcelerate and other groups have been advocating and defining as e-consent, uh, if we're talking about this as a patient-centric experience, then it's not a PDF. Then it's an interactive document that perhaps has some multimedia, certainly can you know be expanded upon in text size, can have the document itself narrated with you know an audio functionality. Uh, there has to be an interactivity to it that makes the sections digestible on a reading level. Um, we put tremendous, tremendous effort um, behind the development of this product with patient testing. And as I said early on, almost exclusively with elderly patients doing macular degeneration studies and arthritis studies and late-stage prostate cancer with elderly patients um, to build a tool that was patient-friendly. And, you know... I, I, I want to tell you though that there's there's definitely a market where that's not necessarily the need. Um, and when we talk about DCTs, there's there's a, a, a place and a product f for every different unique situation. And so, you know, going back to we lament that sometimes it's just a simple PDF. Well, sometimes a simple PDF is the right solution and it's adequate. It depends on what it is we're trying to accomplish. So yes, I came at this from a physician-patient communication, wanting to improve their dialogue, support their dialogue. I wanted to reduce the time a physician spent simply explaining a protocol and all of the procedures and risks, et cetera, and allow that to be presented in an engaging multimedia fashion so that the questions that could be highlighted and discussed in depth would be around a patient's unique individual concerns about participation, how this might interact uh, with another medicine or their diet, how it might impact their life schedule and getting places and, and participating in the trial and the visit. So I, I fear we could digress here greatly from today's topic, but you know, there's there's time, there's, there's a, a means for electronic informed consent, particularly in interactive multimedia consent, to support physician-patient dialogue uh, in, a, in a means that makes that dialogue uh, more productive, more specific to the patient's individual questions and needs, and less programmatic. Uh, and that's best done with multimedia. But, you know, there, there's, there's a space uh, for simple PDF solutions and a reason. And again, when we get back to the whole GDPR privacy and country discussions, perhaps specifically in that space, a need for that product. Yeah. Well, okay. That was perfect. <laughs> and we'll park it for today. And maybe yeah. Craig, we got another tee up here for how would we evolve the consent experience? And some people do it really well. 
but what are the barriers to really achieving that vision that Karen had in the first place? Well, I think we've got three big themes for the next few minutes. We'll see how much we get through together before the bottom of the hour. And then I want to make sure we open it up for any questions, ideas, concerns, experiences from folks in the audience today. But so far, these three big themes uh, leaning in around country, around site, and around participant experience. And at the country level, some of this will hit right back in the theme for your uh, for the article that you co-authored. where and um, where they can use e-consent on a country-by-country basis. Can you take different strategies that are fit for purpose in different countries and make that work in the context of a multi-center, multinational trial? Um, and are there good resources to help us with navigating? Okay, so you, unfortunately, Craig, you... Um... I lost your audio for a few minutes of that, not a few minutes, but certainly a, a substantial part of a minute or more. But I think I understood the bottom line of the question, and I'm going to try to address it. So you were talking about a global trial, um, sites in, in different countries, different regulatory environments, different fit-for-purpose type products. And I would say that absolutely um, there's no reason why you can't have a decentralized clinical trial strategy that includes e-consent that's deployed in different ways in different countries. Um, and, and so you do want to look at those opportunities. A second part of your question, that's going to really get complex. Like, What are the resources for navigating that? How do you know which product, um, which criteria are going to be fit for purpose in different countries? And, and that's a great question. Um, one of the initiatives that I'm involved with right now that I'm super excited about is the European Forum's Good Clinical Practice e-consent workstream. And I'm co-chairing a database workstream there where we're trying to collect much more of that specific information to guide uh, pharma the pharma industry sponsors and vendors um, providers around regulatory issues, what's possible where, how to know what your submission strategy needs to include, what your signature strategy under different um, consenting scenarios needs to be set up for. Um, there are times if we want to start getting into the, the whole GDPR and European uh, topic now where, you know, under EIDAS, which is the electronic um, identification and definitions of digital signatures, there's three different levels of a digital signature, for instance, simple, digital, advanced, and qualified. And I won't spend a lot of time defining them today, but there are times where a digital signature, the simplest form, makes perfect sense and, and can fit a trial need. Um, if we're talking about a phase four, consumer research, registries, uh, no requirement necessarily for a countersign by a PI, then a digital signature is perfectly adequate. Would you want to use a digital signature if you're talking about a remote consent in an urgent care situation where you're trying to reach the LAR over the phone, the legally um, authorized representative? No. Um, if you're recruiting participants to a trial uh, who are not necessarily known to the investigators, then you know, does it make sense to use a qualified electronic um, signature as opposed to an advance? Perhaps. Um, when is advanced sufficient? So I think coming back to sort of the, the how to navigate this, what you need to understand is that different scenarios call for different strategies. What are those different strategies? What are the options for them? 
and and when do you deploy them and this is part of what we're trying to do in the European um, Forum for Good Clinical Practice right now. I've started so, to touch on your question, but yeah, go ahead and help, help So your... I'll just give a shout out. So um, some folks on this call may know uh, uh, Hilde Vanekin from her work at Transcelerate, where she led the e-consent uh, work stream at, uh, at Transcelerate, which had produced some great work in terms of mapping where and how e-consent can be deployed in different countries. Um, Hilde is, uh, uh, I know, been helping to to kickstart this European Forum GCP e-consent initiative, and we'll be working with her and the rest of this team to make sure there are good connections back to the DTRA community for folks that want to have that transparency and visibility to the great work that's happening there. You can take a look at um, the European Forum for GCP efgcp.eu and find more there on the uh, on the e-consent initiative and other good work that's happening over there. Karen, how did I do about a plug for the, uh, Fantastic. the EFGCP initiative? <laughs> Thank you. Well done. <laughs> and I think it's really valuable. I mean, this is, you know, if we look back at the article, right, that we, we're centering this conversation on navigating GDPR guidelines, I mean, that's just a really, really, really tiny tip of the iceberg that you know, on, on suggestions and advice and what we're hoping we're going to be able to do with our efforts in this work stream that, you know, Hilde, who's just absolutely an amazing individual, um, has been spearheading is, is to get us a little bit below the waterline and to provide tools and resources for everybody in this community to know how to navigate a little bit better, to put together a resource guide and, and, um, the information that will go a lot deeper than our, you know, two page article. <laughs> That's that's great, and you know we, um, Jane within DTRA um, also an navigating going on. Anything you want to comment there as far as um, what that initiative is looking to create and how it might complement some of this deeper dive that Karen had mentioned on the e-consent side? Yeah. Um... I lost you there for just a sec, but I think you were asking about how or what DTRA is working on to help people navigate this, what we'll call ambiguity. And a team has worked at trying to pull together the regulatory guidance that exists. Now we're trying to put that into a digital format, probably by DCT solutions, that's what I'll call it. And I think that the layer of detail that Karen and Hildy are working on with their colleagues is going to fit right underneath all of that at some point in time. So supportive, what we create will be high level. It sounds like Karen and Hildy are going to really dig into how do you make this work. Sounds like a really nice deep dive. Um, Karen, are there some very specific issues or concerns related to GDPR that folks need to be mindful and cognizant of, whether around decentralizing things in general or e-consent in particular? Absolutely, thanks. So there's a lot of things, and I'm gonna start with um, the fact that under EMEA guidelines, and I'm, I'm gonna take this very European focused for the moment, um, but I think there's uh, applications across APAC and to some extent North America as well, but certainly, in anemia, you know, the sponsor 
under the guidelines on computerized systems and electronic data in clinical trials is uh, absolutely responsible for the validation of computerized systems used in the clinical trial process. And while they may rely on qualification documentation that's provided by their vendors, um, they may also have to perform additional qualification and validation activities. And they need to be aware that it's about not only GDPR or um, Article 3, for instance, that applies to the processing of personal data of persons in the EU, but also um, there's Article 5 around data integrity. There's um, uh, articles around confidentiality. And these overlap with many other uh, requirements from different authorities. In fact, um, you need to be able to look at GDPR and look at it in combination with good clinical practice, with the EU clinical trial regulation uh, that was revised in 2014, and with state and country level requirements. Um, here in Germany, we've got um, two particular um, laws or acts, the German Medicinal Products Act and um, the uh, Bundesmantelvertrag, I'm not sure how to translate it at the moment, um, that are relevant and that have also um, themes around things like confidentiality and data privacy, security, restricted access, configurability, and data integrity. So um, it's a lot to unpack. Uh, I'll start with the concept, just a single one to break it down as an example for today's audience of um, privacy by design and default. This is really central um, to being GDPR compliant, is that all systems that are touching uh, personal data, um, especially directly identifiable personal information, um, must be designed with privacy as the central aspect. And so, for instance, where this comes into play in an electronic informed consent system, for instance, is you have many electronic informed consent systems that require a potential study participant to enter an email address in order to even access the documents. So, where, you know, where is that email address being stored? How is it being stored? Where are the servers? Are the servers, if it's for a site in France, um, do they have the health data security uh, clearance for the storage of that information? What is the encryption level in transit and at rest? Have we made sure that um, we don't collect any information that's not absolutely required, um, privacy by default again? Um, and it applies, this is the other thing I think many people lose fact um, the site of not only to your study participants but to any study staff or monitors or CRAs who may be users of your system and who may for instance be logging in with email addresses that identify who they are um, cookies that um, identify where they logged in from these are things that need to be carefully considered when you're looking at uh, clinical trial technology, particularly in Europe, um, how is access restricted, um, and, and how can somebody be forgotten if they want their information removed. Um, there are laws, for instance, where this has to be done in a single click for a participant, that they can unenroll in something or withdraw. So 
again, there's tremendous amounts to unpack, <laughs> um, but just a little bit of what one needs to start looking at and being aware of when they're deploying um, any clinical trial technology, particularly any of the DCT enabling technologies in Europe um, in order to be GTPR compliant. Plenty more there to unpack and a lot of considerations on the site side for us still to get into. We are at the bottom of the hour. By the way, Jane, is my audio going in and out? Are you able to hear me okay? I can now. It's perfect. Okay, good, good, good. Um, I'll blame it on COVID. So if you are just joining us here at the bottom of the hour, welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club covering the range of topics around enabling decentralized research globally today, talking with Karen from IQVIA about GDPR privacy and special considerations around electronic informed consent. We've been talking about some of GDPR considerations. We've been talking about some global considerations. We still have a lot to talk about as it relates to sites, making it easier for sites, site adoption, and even some participant experience considerations still to come. But we also like to use this as our time to open up the room for your feedback, your questions, your experiences on today's topic. If you would like to join in the conversation, you've got a little hand raising icon in the lower right of your screen here on Clubhouse. Feel free to give it a tap. We'll bring you up on the stage and give you an opportunity to share questions, experiences, other observations or thoughts or ideas on today's topic. In the meantime, Jane, let's continue forward. Did you have any builds on uh, on Karen's share so far on GDPR or shall we dip into some other site considerations? I do and we can park it if it's not, not well, if it's too tangential. So. You really got me curious here, Karen, because in the United States, when we're using decentralized methods and e-consent, we often ask for patients to release their medical records <clears throat> so we can confirm if they are fit for the trial. How does that work if you're operating under GDPR in the EU, or does it? I honestly don't have that answer, and I don't want to take us too far off track, but it's often bundled along with the consent documents, or even in some cases before, depending on the nature of the trial. Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of things and common practices in the United States um, would um, raise the hair on the back of our necks here in, in Europe. <laughs> um, What's going to be really important under GDPR is it's, it's not impossible. It's not that you can't do it. It's that you're going to have to be super careful about the transparency of what you're asking for, why you're asking for it, how it will be processed, by whom it will be processed, and how the potential participant or the participant has the um, ability to revoke access or permission to that. And and you need to be able to document and show that the potential participant had access to this wealth of information you need to share with them and that they agreed to it prior to subsequent agreements to release medical records, for instance, um, in order to engage in a pre-screening activity of any sort. Got it. So same rules, but make sure you don't forget to apply them for all the different elements. That's kind of how I'm summarizing it. Probably. Yep. 
But, you know, and again, authorities here in Europe are going to want to make sure that if you're asking for the information, that it has a very specific purpose and that it's necessary to the conduct of the trial, right? So you can't ask for, you know, a broad range of medical background um, and, and go on a fishing expedition, for instance. That would never get approval. Okay. Well, that may be an, a subsequent topic for another day, but thank you very much for that. My pleasure. So Karen, in, and again, a reminder to our audience, if you have questions, you can also drop in the chat. We'll keep an eye over there. And one of the questions in the chat that came up earlier and that um, I think uh, Jane hinted at and Karen, you hinted at, concerns investigator sites. And it's not so much that I think investigator sites are opposed in principle to electronic informed consent, but I think many of them are finding it difficult to make it work in their environments. Um, what, what learnings or observations have you found as it relates to helping investigator sites to say yes to informed consent done electronically? And are there futures out there that we should aspire toward that can, can make this easier for everyone in the process? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a great big bright future out there. I know we'll get there one day. But right now for sites, and we're all very conscious, we read about it every day, sites are completely overwhelmed, understaffed, under-resourced, and um, overworked. So, I mean, we've seen for the first time in the UK, healthcare strikes, you know, haven't happened in 100 years. Uh, it's not something that healthcare staff do uh, gladly or easily because they they desperately care about their patients and want to be there to help them. So we, as you know, individuals and companies introducing technologies with all the best intentions to be more patient friendly and more site friendly, you know, we need to keep in mind that some sites are looking at um, every sponsor on the multiple different trials that they work on introducing a new technology with a new login um, so, you know, maybe they're doing studies for five different sponsors and each sponsor has chosen a different uh, e-consent product and they all have their own logins and they may or may not connect to their IRT system or their ECOA system. So what do we need to do? We need to be able to build platforms that are a lot more plug and play um, for interoperability and for um, a single sign-on access so that site staff don't need 20 different logins, that they can go to one portal and figure out which sponsor they're working for and which technology they need to access and to get there in a single sign-on. You know, I, I, this is a little bit of a utopia dream. Uh, we're working on building something like that right now called One Home that would be accessible across you know, regardless of who the vendor is and who the sponsor is so that sites um, have their workflows eased. Um, the other thing to consider when we're engaging sites is that the technology to be deployed in the clinical trial can't be an afterthought. It can't be introduced after site selection. It has to be known up front and planned for as the protocol is being developed and part of the engagement and discussion with sites at the site selection visits, um, if there's site selection surveys, any technology that's going to be um, utilized within the study needs to be uh, defined, explained, we need to make sure that sites are able to um, you know, ensure that those are compliant with their local SOPs. Uh, there's a very frequent um, 
feedback or pushback from sites that oh, we can't use that because it's not in our SOPs. Our SOPs don't address it. And the ironic thing is if you actually get them to supply their SOPs, um, there's actually nothing in their SOPs that um, prohibit e-consent, but it's an easy answer. It's an easy pushback often on their behalf because they're nervous and they're overworked. Um, occasionally there's something in the SOP, but usually it's just that the SOP doesn't address it, but the SOP also doesn't prohibit it. And so if you have these discussions early on, you can have the conversation, you can have your site activation managers or whomever's interfacing with your sites, pull those SOPs, look at them, discuss them, and then really address what is the actual underlying concern behind this pushback that was used. You know, we blamed the SOP, but what's really at heart here, what's happening? And what can we do to address that? And, and sometimes it's just simple site education. Um, but finding that time for that set conversation. Go ahead, Jay. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm I'm waiting. I have a question. <laughs> Go ahead. Let me hear your question. Um, well, it it's a follow-on. So, mm -hmm. given that sites have all this complexity, um, how often do you see the 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 technology decision flipped. So the site says, this is what I have. I know it works. It's been, um, it, it's been through all of the requirement gathering and certification qualification. Why can't I use this? So how often are you seeing sites saying, this is what I have and this is what I plan to use? We're seeing that a lot more. That's a great question. In fact, um, you know, there's an academic institution out of Canada that built an open source e-consent solution, for instance, and made it available throughout North America to a lot of, in particular, first-line academic institutions that were doing clinical trials. And, um, and we are hearing that. I mean, so it used to be in the United States, you know, we sites have approval for e-consent, for e-signature, it's pretty easy. And it used to be you could count on 100% site adoption in the United States. Um, that's no longer the case because more and more sites are turning to their own in-house solutions that they've taken, whether it be that open source solution or some variation. There's now also a commercial version of that same solution. Um, the thing about that is how does that map with the rest of the data? How is the data that's there being transferred to the EDC, to the IRT? Can it, um, is that effective? And is the solution truly robust enough for the type of trial you're doing? In many cases, the answer might be yes. But if you're talking about a complex oncology trial with a pre-screening and then assignment to one of our cohort or treatment groups, um, many times you can't track and link the documents and pass a pre-screen consent to a cohort or a treatment group in a complex trial with some of these other uh, solutions that they have in-house. So it actually adds more opportunity for error, which is why, once again, if we go back to the idea of having an early conversation, engaging with the site, and then saying, okay, I understand you've got a solution. Let's just make sure here's a checklist. These are the things that your solution needs to be able to manage. If it can't manage this, what's the mitigation? What's the workarounds? And if we feel like that's actually um, creating more hoops that are complex and introduce more potential for error, let's look at an alternative that the sponsor is willing to provide for you and see how that fits in and if we can make that work in your workflow. Um, but it's, it's about having those very early conversations and figuring out what works best for the site and in some cases maybe the answer is you do need to at that site use the site's solution and not the sponsor's vendor of choice.
that's a really hot topic and a great observation. I think that I, I, I have the sense that large health systems, large academic centers, large established site networks, some of those private equity-backed, well-capitalized site networks, um, all, many of these, certainly if you're doing clinical trials on your own as, a, as an academic center, you probably have electronic informed consent and people are trained in your institution. And if you're a, a well-capitalized site network, you're probably investing in that type of infrastructure for your organization. So it, it, it's, it gives me optimism that maybe through groups like DTRA, where we have a team that's now looking at interoperability and minimum quality standards, how can that help us so that as sponsors and CROs, we can get the data that we need around signatures, dates, versions to ensure compliance and oversight, but give sites a little more autonomy to use the front ends that their staff are already trained on and with which they're most familiar. Absolutely. We've got to be flexible. We've got to be able to have solutions that meet diverse needs. Makes sense. Makes sense. So that's... Um, that's going to be some uh, some of the focus for DTRA's initiative 4C that leans in around um, interoperability and longer term, uh, more transformational opportunities for us around uh, technology and data. That you know, as Karen, as you said, that's that's kind of our holy grail, and it's going to take a while to get there. But it is, you know, as as the as the chief financial officer at Pfizer used to tell us, it is directionally correct. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm seeing a lot of questions. I finally figured out how to open the chat here, and I'm seeing some great comments and questions. I'd, I'd love to go back to your audience and the participants today. Um, Mackenzie, Brad, Wendy, you've all got some great comments. Can we can we head in that direction? Absolutely. I don't know if, if any of those who've dropped questions in the chat want to come on the screen and share by all means. Otherwise, I will give a shot here. Um, I do see, for example, uh, Brad Hightower's observation. Brad uh, was a guest with us just last week. I'll use e-consent all day. Just give me a good one. If it's not better, easier, more efficient than paper, why should I use it? That's a pretty fair question. Absolutely it is. It's exactly the same comment that we're hearing from all of the sites. So I think a lot of times, and again, this goes back to conversations and education. There's so many perceptions out there that paper is easier. Let's start there. And they think it's efficient because, hey, my IRB or my CRO sent me a binder or a box full of documents. I just pull it off the shelf, put it in front of the patient, explain the protocol, answer the questions, get them to sign, and I'm done in 10 minutes. Brilliant. That's, that's easy and it's efficient, isn't it? But what we're not capturing there, Brad, and what we also have to remind sites of is that six months down the road, their CRA is going to come on site and they're going to ask to pull all of those documents and look through all of them. And then they're going to find out that this document's missing this signature or there were five optional questions on the signature page that didn't get addressed on this one or, you know, this error and that error. And one of the things that we can prove with e-consent beyond a doubt and with pretty strong data is that electronic informed consent reduces um, errors dramatically 
And by reducing those errors, you don't have to spend all that time, you know, explaining to the CRI where it is and looking it up and finding things that you're missing and then, oh, going back and reconsenting the patient and, or perhaps not even being able to continue the patient in the study. And hey, everybody read the headlines last Friday, and I know you saw them, Brad, as well, <laughs> that we've got, you know, thousands of patients being dropped from an unnamed vaccine trial because of GCP violations. And some of those violations come to light later on down the road, and then you need to go back and re-recruit and extend your study deadlines. We can point to these things costing sites time and money down the road that they're not thinking about at the moment that they're gathering consents. So when we show them that stepping back taking a different process that can be worked into their workflows as soon as they understand how to use it that will save them these errors that will say that will enable you know source data verification you know remotely in some cases depending on legality and location and now we're out of europe again you know there's all kinds of things that we need to help prove so i've gone way off on brad's comments wendy and Joachim and others have some as well um, other things you want me to address, or shall I just go to the next comment in the in the feature? Yeah, let's keep the chat open because I, I see Brad says he has laryngitis. Lucky for <laughs> us, is those are his words. Um, but uh, Brad, if you have builds, let us know. Wendy's share here is: um, Could you please describe the potential regulatory and privacy differences between e-consent for a clinical trial versus? e-consent for repositories and biobanks intended for future reference or future research. Are there differences? Are there tiers? Or what are some of the differences you have in mind? So I don't know if Wendy's going to elaborate on that question when you say you have in mind, but I, I will tell you that not only those, but many other consenting scenarios, uh, real world, um, post-consumer registries, there are many different scenarios that do have different implications for e-consents. And I, I, you know, if, if you were in on part of the, the earlier part of the conversation early in the day is that there's got to be a right fit for the product and the scenario. And it's one of the things that we're going to try to deep dive in with the European form of good clinical practice. We've actually developed this grid saying, okay, if it's an on-site consent and the PI can authenticate the patient live in person, which of these signature modalities is required or necessary if it's and, and we lay out like eight different consenting scenarios remote is the patient incapacitated is it an lar is there a video chat involved or just a phone authentication and this is the same thing sort of with biobanks we've done a lot of biobank consenting um, in particular actually even at, at some um, some site networks um, is a countersign required or not these things all impact what type of e-consent and in particular what type of e-signature is appropriate to the consenting scenario. And we hope to have a lot more information available for you in a year when we wrap up um, all of our workstream um, database work for the, uh, the EU GCF. You know, just one build on that, Karen. Mm -hmm. Do tiered consents work or do they create <laughs> confusion? Oh, <laughs> I wish we guys. I, I wish we had all day. Um, do they work or do they create confusion? Um, you know, the jury's a bit out on that, and part of that depends on the engagement with the study staff and the 
the investigators around the consent. So for those who may not be familiar with tiered consent, this is a concept that Transcelerate um, elaborated on extensively saying, look, upfront the consent needs to have certain pieces of information that are absolutely required that everybody needs to get. And then beyond that, there's all this other information that's sort of good to tell the patient about or that your lawyers want to make sure you tell the patient about that's not um, front and center. And so it has to do with the structuring of how consent is delivered. And there's really fantastic opportunity to deploy tiered consent in an electronic manner, you know, even better than we can on paper, which helps patients focus in on what they're really needing to understand and what's optional information they can sort of take home and read at their leisure. Um, does it create more confusion? Depends in part on how it's presented. Is it presented you know, in a paper document or in a, in a tool that's designed to handle that required information, optional information? And you know, if it's not really intuitive within that tool about whether or not that optional information is addressed or how they address it or how they access it later on, if that hasn't been explained either within the tool itself or by the site staff presenting the electronic consent, then there's certainly opportunity to create more confusion and to be just as overwhelming as a paper document. But there's also great potential if delivered properly to be so much easier for patients. Yeah, yeah I want to yeah. dive in there just for one second as a call to action, because I think that Yes, it, you have to design it well, but if you imagine a world where oncology studies are more basket and umbrella, it seems to me tiered consent is going to become a norm Should. and mm -hmm. it would help a lot. Absolutely. But it has to be, you know, it has to be electronically, you have to be careful about how it's navigated and that you've distinguished between the required information that has to be acknowledged and marked as understood within the consent document and recorded within the audit trail versus the information that's optional. And how do we know that the participants have access to that optional information? Do we need to track it in the audit trail? There, there are a lot of questions around that when delivering it electronically, but it's a great topic. We have a guest from the audience, Wendy Charles here with us. Wendy, come on off mute, share your question or perspective on today's topic. Oh, thank you, Craig. And um, I wanted to thank Karen and Jane for providing such an insightful discussion so far. I'm really learning a lot from your perspectives. I had just uh, wanted to follow up on the question I had posed in the chat about differences in consent, e-consent in particular, for uh, clinical trials versus repositories. One of the things that I ponder is that since GDPR offers exceptions for some of the privacy regulations for clinical trials and for healthcare, do you see participation in repositories being different because it's really not um, a clinical trial and it, uh, direct healthcare isn't being delivered? So how should we think about the regulatory implications for a repository perhaps differently than we would for other modalities? So that's a great question. And again, I think we're still gathering a lot of the data to help guide the answers to that question. And I'm going to also um, say here in this case, this is where I wish my colleague Jill were on the line because she also has a much deeper knowledge of those nuances under GDPR regulations. I think it's a great question and it's one, unfortunately, I'm not prepared to answer today. Can I ask a, a follow-up question to that? 
I am seeing a lot more discussions about dynamic consent. And since e-consent can facilitate a dynamic interaction over, over time between the research team and an individual, um, should we be looking more carefully into dynamic consent options for e-consent for, say, longer-term projects or re repository participation? Yeah, another great question. Absolutely, I think the answer to that is yes, we should be looking at it. I think there's still a lot of implications that have been unexplored around IRB approvals. Um, this is one of the areas that it becomes very difficult to navigate um, when it's a dynamic consent is what's driving that? How is it sort of controlled? How is it you know, overseen? And I think there's a lot of nervousness still amongst ECs and IRBs around that concept. So I feel like we really need to define it a lot better, um, understand how it's managed, and you know, just make sure that we're able to document the integrity of the process at the end of the day. Could you possibly give us, honestly, the simplest definition and, and difference between tiered and dynamic consents? I'm, I'm sorry, was that addressed at me versus Wendy? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, not, not very well. So tiered, well, to some extent, yes. So tiered consent, we know up front, right? It, it's, a, it's still a static document. Uh, we know all the elements of the consent document and we have them all in front of the IRB and approved in advance. The concepts, as I understand them, behind dynamic consent, and I've not done anything more than read about it theoretically, we've not actually deployed it, is that um, there's more opportunity for the involvement of that consent uh, throughout the duration of the trial. Uh, but it's the, the concept of it, the way I would describe it, I'd love for Wendy to to weigh in here too is if you're familiar with software development the difference between waterfall and agile when you're talking about something that's um, dynamic it's it is more agile so it's developed things can be changed discussed and mediated throughout the process and that's what becomes much more difficult to control Wendy do you have a different definition or concept that you'd like to share I think that what you described is, is very accurate. I can simply add a little bit to this. I have implemented dynamic consent and the goals are to offer individuals more menu choices and the ability to log into a system and change their minds over time. And research has shown thus far that implementations of dynamic consent have increased individuals' willingness to participate in repositories because they have more visibility and control over how their information is being used. So um, it, it's more of a patient-centered concept. And as more and more, as we have much broader penetration of smartphones, for example, particularly in the United States, then individuals do have a platform where they can further interact with the system being designed for consent and have more participatory actions over time. I think that's a brilliant idea. I, I, you know, the, the things that come to my mind is still challenging is different elements of a study if they've been withdrawn you know, on that menu basis. Where does that tie into downstream systems and actions and follow-ups and how do we track the differences? I think it becomes really, really complex to do, particularly at scale, but I think it's a concept that's worthy of a lot more exploration. 
Yeah, it, it's, um, it's a better fit for a repository where an individual cannot withdraw their participation if their data have already been used, data or specimens have already been used. However, an individual could change their preferences for being contacted for future research, for future uses of their data and specimens. And as we continue to get headlines about um, abuses, misuses <laughs> of information, um, individuals seem to want to be able to change their minds more readily. And it's just a tool to engage them. One action that I've seen that seems really promising is use of dynamic consent with the concept of progressive consent. And progressive consent is being en enacted with AI in order to allow um, sites to identify those individuals who are more willing to engage, are more willing to sign up for future studies, and ask them for more and more permissions over time or more uses of their data and specimens over time with the perception that the individual is probably more ready to agree than they are. You know, when the consent form is first presented to them and they're kind of asked for more, asked for permission for a lot of things that they don't yet understand. I know we're at the top of the hour, Craig, and I did have a bit of a hard stop. Is there some wrap-up? There's much more great there chat. There is a wrap-up because we do try to respect everybody's <laughs> lunch hour and evening hours here. So with that, I'm going to thank everybody for jumping in today. Be sure to take a look at the paper that's linked at the top here. Follow Karen and her team. Thank you, Wendy, for uh, for jumping in uh, with your perspective on today's questions and everybody in the audience for joining in today. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, keep your, uh, keep your eyes and ears posted for upcoming topics. And if you have something you'd love to share here, just drop us a line. Thanks, everybody, and have a fabulous weekend.